We'll be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll read verse 12 through the end of the chapter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be coming today to the doxology, the closing prayer at the end of this book. It's in verses 23 to 28. Paul has basically been working through Christianity 101 for the people. He wasn't able to finish his basic teaching that he did in all the churches because problems with the apostate Jews. They formed a mob. They dragged off some of the members before the civil authorities and wanted to crush the church. And so he was forced to leave and is now finishing the basic teachings in a letter, which was rough for them, but great for us because we have these things written down. And all in God's providence. So he has instructed them in the basic Christian life so that they might live, as Paul calls us to. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And that verse is really the basis for the Christian life. And that's what he's been teaching us all about in this book as we've been going through it. It's the heart of what our new life should look like as we're transformed through the power of the gospel. Of course, all of this is leading up to the day of the Lord, the day the Lord returns judges the world, and rewards those who have diligently sought him. So think about that as we go to the text. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your mercies to us and allowing us to come together and to open your word this day and to ponder the things that you have written there and pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive them, to examine ourselves and to transform our lives more and more into the image of your Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Paul's doxology here is really a closing prayer for the book. And so it's focused on the things that he cared most about in the book, the things that he's teaching most sincerely and with most fervor. So he starts off, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God is described as the God of peace a few times by Paul and elsewhere. And it's interesting that he uses that. But as we see in reading through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians had really been undergoing persecution since they came to know the Lord. It was shortly after they came to know the Lord that the persecution began, and it was quite fierce, fierce enough that people were arrested and dragged off to the magistrate trying to crush the church. Uh, the, The apostate Jews and the rabble of the city of Thessalonica, were stirred up quite well. Uh, We struggle often with peace in our lives. Anyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The persecution will come. The trials will come. But even if we have no outward persecution, we're still strangers in this world, strangers and pilgrims wandering through it. We don't belong to the world. The things of the world are not ours. And so our peace is often taken away. But the God of peace wants us to have peace. And that peace starts with him. Remember Jesus' words to the disciples? If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, well, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. John 15, 18 through 20. It's hard to have that peace of God when the world hates us. Not only does it hate us, but we're not allowed to love it or or cherish it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Not only does the world hate us, but if we were to love the world, we would not be able to be called children of God. For in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2. 15 through 17. It's important to think about that. The world is passing away. It's temporary. It's transitory. But eternity with God or eternity in hell will be without him. Please, children, no talking at all, please. You're disrupting. James says, calls us your adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have to be careful not to love the world, the things of the world, because we will be at enmity with God, and if we are at enmity with God, we can have no peace with him. We also have to be careful how we love sinners. How we love the godless. We need to do it the way Peter says. 
in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. The way we love the godless, the greatest love we can show for them, and the only love as Christians we really should be showing for them, is to witness to the gospel, to testify about sin, to see them convicted of sin and bring them to repentance. Of course, it's as, Jesus, as Peter said, with gentleness and respect. As a Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26 You cannot mistakenly think that you can love them by encouraging them in their sins and helping them in their sins. Remember what happened to Jehoshaphat after he helped Ahab. Jehu, the son of Hananiah the seer, the prophet, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath has gone out from you against the Lord, from you, against you from the Lord. Second Chronicles 19:2. And we are not to love the wicked or help those who hate God. We are to be a shining light, a lamp on its stand, a city on a hill, salt and light to bring them to knowledge of Christ. Of course, we also need to remember we were no better than Ahab in the past. We were in the flesh before we knew God, and the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, to the spirit who dwells in you. Romans 8, 7 through 11. So how can we who are hostile to God, who are enemies of God, who are dead in our sin, have peace with God? Paul tells us, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person he would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we have now received reconciliation. So how does peace come to the wicked? By the reconciliation in Christ, by his blood, by his work on the cross, by his perfect life in this world. And that's where the Christian peace comes from. Since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Through the gospel, through faith, we receive the blessings of Christ in his work, and we have peace with God. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. All of the sins of Christ's people were paid by Christ on the cross. It was nailed there with him, and he paid for it in full. And thus we can have peace with God. And that peace with God is foundation with the the God of peace gives us peace with him. Then we are able to have peace with each other. Paul had mentioned that earlier in the chapter in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. That peace of God with us should be transferred to peace amongst each other since we are both all children of God. James calls it true wisdom, wisdom from above. It's pure, it's peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We worship a God of peace and we are to have peace with each other. And more than that, we are to sow peace. Many people sow discord in arguments and fighting. But we are to sow peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. A closing prayer in doxology in 2 Corinthians 13:11. We have a God of peace that we worship, and his peace must be in us, and we must be at peace with one another, and as far as it lies within us, with all. And it's more here, though, the God, God of peace sanctifies us. Now, that sanctification is critical to the Christian life, that making of us as holy. All of the doctrine Paul has written to the Thessalonians, and it is a book of doctrine, all the doctrine he has written to them would be useless if the Holy Spirit was not there in their hearts to help them move it from their heads to their hearts and to their life, to their actions. We all have head knowledge, but head knowledge alone doesn't please God. Head knowledge that results in a transformed life and in new life and new actions is what pleases God. That head knowledge turning into fruit in our lives. And that's what sanctification is all about, is we progressively become more and more holy in our lives, producing more and more fruit through our lives. John the Baptist warned the people to bear fruit, keeping with repentance, Matthew 3.8. Jesus said to the unbelieving Jews, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit, Matthew 21.43. And that was Paul's teaching everywhere and why we see it in this passage. He's talking about sanctification again. Sanctification is taking that height knowledge, doing what is right, being transformed more and more into the image of Christ, doing more and more holy things, producing more and more fruit. He said, 
that to King Agrippa, after he'd been arrested, he testified that he was not a d- disobedient to the heavenly vision that he had received, but he declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, Acts 26, 19-20. Paul taught everyone everywhere that their deeds would be should be performed in keeping with their repentance. In other words, that as they are transformed, their life should be transformed and it should be in their lives, in their works, in the things they do from day to day. And that was a critical part of his teaching. And that is what he's referring to here when he talks about our sanctification by God. Those who are saved, who are born again, have had their heart of stone taken out and a heart of flesh put in its place, have had God put his Holy Spirit in them. Those people will, by their new nature, produce a holy fruit. And the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. In other words, from one degree to another, we get better and better and better and closer and closer to Christ through our life. That is our sanctification. And how does that come about? Well, this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit, Paul said. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Psalm 127, verse 1. Sanctification is a work of God's grace, whereby they whom God hath before the foundation of the world chosen to be holy are in time, through the powerful operation of his Spirit, applying the death and resurrection of Christ to them, renewed in their whole man after the image of God, having the seeds of repentance unto life and all other saving graces put in their hearts, and those graces so stirred up increased and strengthened as they are more and more to die to sin and rise unto newness of life. That is the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 75, concerning this sanctification of which we speak. Now note that Paul says, sanctify you completely or perfectly in our text. Jesus, after exposing all of our presumed holiness and sinfulness in the Sermon on Mount says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The author of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone. The God of peace does require that. And for the holiness, which out with no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. Paul calls on God to sanctify us completely here because it's required of us. We must be perfect to stand in the presence of God. He's so holy and so perfect and so just that no sinner can stand in his presence. Of course, Paul admits that he's not there. Paul the Apostle says in Philippians 3, 12 through 16, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. He's admitting he's not perfect but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. 
Let those of us who are mature think this way. If any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul is fond of that kind of illustration of pressing on towards the prize, fighting the good fight, running the race, holding fast to the word of life. And as he awaits death at the hands of Rome in his second Roman imprisonment, he writes to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. If he hadn't achieved the perfection in this life, which was required, where does his confidence come from? Well, Paul doesn't, doesn't Paul call for God to sanctify us completely? The answer is simple. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now all of those past sins have been paid for by Christ, and God is transforming us into the image of Christ. And that transformation will be complete. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22 and following, that we have come to Mount Zion in the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When we reach God, be it when we die or when we meet him in the air, we will be one of those spirits of the righteous made perfect. That perfection will be given to us completely. We will be fully sanctified, not just justified, in God saying our sins are paid for on the cross, but our transformation will be completed and we will be then unsinning, unable to sin, no sin in us anymore. That transformation will be complete and we will be with him forever. God can do this because we've been justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to receive, be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Remember, that's Romans 3, 24 and 25. Our sins have been paid for, and in that way he is just to make us perfect, to give us a place with him, because all of our sins are done and paid for. And really all of God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness, is also imputed to us. We can be perfect because he paid for our sins. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1.30 We have been sanctified in him, made perfect in him, when we reach him in heaven. Now he goes on to say, May God keep you blameless. He says, May your whole spirit and body 
Our spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why does he give three parts? It's confusing sometimes because we struggle. What do they mean by spirit? What do they mean by soul? And a lot of times in the Bible, that's clearly a reference to the spirit in us and our soul when it is separated from us. But why three parts here? Calvin calls our attention to Isaiah 26.9. Isaiah says, My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are in the earth, the, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. From here he sees, by soul, Paul means the affections. By spirit, he means our reason and our will. And the body means the body. So he understands that what it means for a man to be pure and entire, perfect, is when he thinks nothing in his mind, desires nothing in his heart, and does nothing with his body except what is approved by God. And I think that's a very good understanding because that's really what it means to live the Christian life. We don't think evil, we don't desire evil, and we don't do evil. And in that way, our whole spirit, soul, and body can be kept blameless. There should be no sin in the Christian but we all know there is. So why does he put it like this? I think first and foremost, that's the goal. That's the direction we're supposed to be moving our entire life towards that sinlessness and blamelessness. But I think what's at mind is what we learned in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 through 10, remember, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say no, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and his word is not in us. We're called to be perfect. We're called to be blameless. But the only way we achieve that is through the blood of Christ. Through repenting of our sins through asking for God's forgiveness, confessing them, and receiving forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And then we really are blameless. There will be no condemnation for us on the day of judgment because it's all paid for by the blood of Christ. We're called to be perfect, but we're not blameless because we are become perfect. We're blameless because we've repented of our sins and had them forgiven by the blood of Christ. And note, he points out in our passage that this is at the coming of the Lord. This book is all about living for that day, for the day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, when his wrath and justice will be poured out on the world. The Christian, we were told earlier, is not to be found drunk or asleep on that day, but to be ready for the judgment. And to be ready for the judgment means that we'd be ready to be found blameless, that we'd be living our life for him, that we'd be repentant of our sins, that we'd be reconciled to him and to each other, living at peace, loving God and loving our brethren. That way we are ready for a blessed eternity. And the way we are ready 
is both, yes, our work to be more holy, but the blood of Christ, which makes us holy. And we can have great confidence in this. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. Verse 24. Who is it that calls us? Paul talks of that often in his letters, the calling of God, calling us to Christ, calling us to himself. In his next letter to the Thessalonians, he writes in the first chapter, verse 11 and 12, To this end we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that you may fulfill every resolve for good work, for every good work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. In Paul's epistles, generally his calling is a reference to our election. He elected us and then he called us to himself. And that's really the, the foundation of Paul's doctrine of salvation, that we have a calling from God to become children of God. Peter encouraged us to make that calling and election sure. In 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are in you and are increasing, sanctification should be increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unspiritual in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. (coughs) For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. We confirm our calling and election, he says, really by our fruit, by our biblical good fruit. We can be confident in our election and in our eternal home by looking at our lives and seeing, are we really transformed? Are we really living for God? Of course, on that day, many will be self-deceived and think they are and find out to their horror they are not, that they were living for themselves. He goes on to say, he is faithful. It's a great encouragement to us. Moses said, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays to their faith those who hate him 
by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him, but will repay him to his faith. face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and statutes and rules that I've written to you today, Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 11. God is a faithful God. He does not change. He does not alter his holiness or his justice or his goodness or his truth. And he does not go back on his covenants. And so we can have great confidence that he will be faithful to the promises he has made us in the New Testament, especially concerning faith and salvation. He says he will surely do it. Because he is faithful, he will surely do it. Jesus told us that all the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So all the Father gives to me will come to me is our calling, and I will never cast them out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How do we know if we're one of the elect, one of those the Father has given to the Son? Well, do we show that evidence? Evidence of a new life, a new spirit within us, a new heart. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. The tree is known by its fruit. If we've been made good, if our heart of stone has been taken out and the heart of flesh put in, the Spirit of God put in us and causing us to walk according to his statutes, there will automatically, from our new nature, be the desire to do what is right and be the good fruit that God talks about. You want evidence of being transformed into the image of Christ, it's your fruit. And we know Concerning election, Paul said, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Romans 11:29. We can have confidence that if he has really, really and truly called us, if he has really and truly transformed us, that he will bring it to fruition. That what he has promised, he will do. And it will be accomplished. What can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave us up, gave him up for us all, how will he not also give with him graciously all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Right? We, how can you bring a charge against us when Christ is a judge and saying, no, I paid for that. And who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised and is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. So there can be no charge against us because the one who intercedes and the one who judges is the one who died for our sins. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us 
from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 31 to 39. We can have that great joy, that great confidence in Christ. And that is what he is trying to give to this fledgling church. It started off with him teaching, but he was driven from town and they were persecuted and harassed, perhaps very severely. And it has continued without rest, without respite. But they haven't turned from God. They haven't given up their hope. And so he closes his first letter to them with a great and encouraging prayer and benediction. And the things he says to them, he says to us as well. And we should remember them and have courage. Courage to live for that day. Confidence that it really will happen. That he really will return. That he really will reward those who have sought him diligently. That his children will be with him forever in bliss and joy indescribable. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we are able to have confidence in you that you will, the work you have begun in us, you will bring to completion, that you are faithful and you will not go back on your covenant with us and that we who have had faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who have been sanctified through his blood, who have been called, who are struggling hard to live a godly life in Christ Jesus who are struggling to die to sin and to live for you, who are struggling in our sanctification day by day, we know that you are faithful and that you will surely do what you have said and what you have promised. And we pray, Lord, that that hope, that grace, would give us strength for the day and bring us to you in the end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.